Podcast Special Season Edition. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. and listeners, welcome to the special season edition of the Thought Hermes podcast, released for Sawin 2017, and therefore coming to you as from October 31st. I am Rudolf, I am your host, and it is a pleasure to welcome you also tonight for this special event. Very briefly, to remind you that you can find us on our website www.thoshermes.com that is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S dot com There you do not only find this and all the previous podcast episodes but also show notes, news articles, book reviews, etc. And you can leave feedback for me there via the contact page or a voicemail via SpeechPipe. Look at the tab at the right of your screen. You can also send me a message through our Facebook and Twitter pages. And of course, also email is a possibility on info at thoshermes.com. The podcast is available also on Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, Blueberry, Stitcher, Android, and many other podcast services. Do tell your friends about us. Thanks to you, the Thos Hermes community is steadily growing. Samhain, or its more secular counterpart Halloween, is a time between seasons, between the worlds. Also, this podcast is between seasons, we have finished season one 12 days ago with Dolores Ashcroft Nowitzki's wonderful interview, which has had a great echo. If you haven't heard it yet, don't miss it, as well as, of course, all the other 11 preceding episodes. And on November 9, season two will start assembling a new dozen of interviews and episodes. So stay tuned. I'm, of course, aware that this show can also be heard, for example, down under and in general on the Southern Hemisphere. And for you guys, it is Beltane now. So to all of you, happy Beltane, and I hope you can enjoy this show anyway. If this is a problem for you, well, just download it and listen to it in six months. And more in general, if you happen to find this episode at a much later date than when it was released, so far away from Sewin, don't worry, 
no problem to listen to it at some other time of the year. I believe it will always be interesting to hear. Now, today this is a very unusual episode, our special seasonal editions, which I plan for the four main season festivals and the solar festivals, will have a different format from the regular shows. No news or reviews and no lengthy interviews, but a collection of contributions. And I am very grateful to my friends and colleagues here on the internet who have been so kind and made wonderful contributions to this episode. Most of them are also guests of previous or upcoming episodes, so this is almost a bit like a family gathering. You're going to hear texts I received from them, which I will read for you, and number of their own recordings they did just for you and for this show. Some also contributed musical recordings picked for this season, and therefore you will find a nice selection of very different types of music. I'm really very honored they did that, and so should you, dear friends and listeners. And most of all, I hope you will enjoy. I do urge you, though, to go to the website and consult all the links and further information on what you're going to hear, and especially about those who have been kind enough to contribute. Don't stop just here and listening, but search onward. I'm not going to have you wait much longer for all this to come, and I'm not going to make my own statements about Samhain here. Just one thing about pronunciation. You've heard me say Samhain in previous episodes and announcements. Now I said Samhain. Well, I know that most of our American friends would use the latter pronunciation. In Europe we say it in several different ways. I got curious and did some research and found out that apparently between Ireland, Wales and Scotland you find at least three different ways just to pronounce it. So it might happen to me that I keep switching without even noticing just because I'm so used to saying Samhain. Just know Samhain and Soin are the same, right? Two of today's musical contributions have been sent to me by Gabriel McCarthy from Montreal. Gabriel is a great author and musician, and he is the owner and motor of the wonderful Anathema Publishing Company. The show notes on our website will give you all the necessary links and I urge you to go there. Take a look at the many facets of his wonderful work. The first music from Gabriel is called Fate and Death, part two, by Lim. Composition and acoustic instrumentation were done by Simon Perron. Arrangements and electronics by Carl Turpin. This piece was released a year ago and goes in conjunction with the occult periodical journal Pillars, and more precisely its edition called Perichoresis.
Lim performing the second of three parts of Fate and Death from Pillars Perichoresis. The first text contribution in this episode comes from Virgil. Virgil is a magician who has been working with Franz Barden's system of magic for around two decades. He is working with the spirits of the elemental regions, earth zone and planetary spheres using Barden's evocation and mental wandering methods. As a magician, he regularly employs the skills he gained from working through Barden's initiation into hermetics in order to improve society in whatever ways he can. He has written several books, published by Falcon Books Publishing. For our Sawind edition, he has sent me a short text inspired by the Tarot called The Magician and the Nine of Swords. The Magician and the Nine of Swords by Virgil. The Nine of Swords is often considered one of the most ominous cards to draw when using the Tarot for divinatory purposes. Its nickname is the Nightmare card, and as you can probably imagine, it is often interpreted as a sign that your biggest nightmares will come true. Of course, the exact correct interpretation of a card varies on a case-by-case -case basis. Sometimes, drawing the Nine of Swords means that all of the bad things that are currently happening to you are no more significant than a dream, and that you will soon wake up and find yourself in a much better situation that will cause you to forget your current troubles. Other times, however, Drawing the Nine of Swords indeed means that your worst nightmares are about to come true. In those cases, where this is the correct interpretation of the Nine of Swords, is there anything the Diviner can do to prevent his worst nightmares from coming true? Dreams pertain to the inner planes. Human beings are spirits in the same way that gnomes, angels and djinn are spirits. The only difference is what we possess, physical bodies. However, the fact that we possess physical bodies does not negate the fact that we are spirits. Since we are spirits, some have argued that the inner planes are our true home and that when we fall asleep each night, we return to our home in the inner planes to refresh ourselves before re-entering our physical bodies and the outer world. In any case, the inner planes constitute the world of dreams. These inner planes are the same inner planes that magicians enter when they practice mental wandering. They are the same inner planes that magicians project elemental energies into via their fluid condensers. They are the same inner planes that magicians call spirits from when they perform evocations. When you dream, 
you experience the inner world. This is usually your own personal subjective inner world, the psyche, but it could also be the objective outer inner world, the astral mental plane. It doesn't matter because what I'm about to write applies to both your personal inner world and the greater inner world that exists independently of you. Whatever is going on in the inner planes manifests in the outer world. For example, if there is a lot of destructive energy on the inner planes, this will be reflected in the outer world through some event that is destructive in nature. This could be a mass shooting or a volcano exploding. If we look at the magician card in the major arcana, we see a man who is raising one hand upwards and pointing at the ground with his other hand. The hand raised upwards gathers power from the higher inner planes. The hand pointing downwards directs that power to the lower or outer or physical plane. What this card shows us is that the magician can consciously and intelligently direct the way inner dynamics are expressed in the outer world. For example, if there is a lot of destructive energy in the inner planes, that would express itself in the form of a mass shooting involving many deaths, a magician could direct that destructive energy as it moves from the inner planes to the outer world in such a way that it expresses itself in the form of an abundant building collapsing instead. In this way, no one gets hurt. Those magicians hearing this article who have been practicing their art for a long time might object that things are rarely that clean and straightforward in real life. Yeah, I know. That's beside the point. The fact remains that the way inner dynamics express themselves in the outer world through events can be influenced and controlled by those who know what they are doing. Okay, so let's think about that nightmare card. When you have a nightmare, one possibility is that the inner planes are filled with troubling energy and you are experiencing the nightmare because you are interacting with this troubling energy in your dream state. As the saying goes, as above, so below. This trouble on the higher or inner planes is going to express itself in the outer world soon. If you let this happen naturally, it could express itself in a way that greatly inconveniences or even hurts you. However, if you work consciously and intelligently with this troubling energy, you can influence this troubling energy as it manifests in the outer world guiding it so that it expresses itself in a way that does not inconvenience or hurt you. As you can guess, the exact way to do this depends on a case-by-case -case basis. However, a combination of intuition, logic and introspection can usually provide you with a decent solution. 
Further divinations to ascertain the exact nature of the troubling energy may also provide you with the knowledge you need to work with it, so it expresses itself in a harmless or even constructive manner. Thanks, Virgil, for this beautiful and insightful contribution and thanks to his publisher, Tanya Robinson, for helping me getting in touch. Our next contribution comes from a very special friend and also a very respected and knowledgeable specialist of the esoteric and occult worlds. Greg Kaminsky, founder and host of the Great Occult of Personality podcast. He has produced for this show a wonderful reading of Key 15, Ayin, from the Book of Tokens by Paul Foster Case. Enjoy. The Devil. The Devil. The Devil. The Devil. Thus saith he who formulateth in darkness, I am Lord, not of light alone, but of darkness also. For I the one am all-pervading. This is a hard saying and a stumbling block to many. Yet must ye consider it well and ponder it in your hearts. Is it not written in Exodus that the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh? And again in Isaiah, I create both the evil and the good. Have ye not also read, the eye of the Lord is in every place? And David saith, if I descend into Sheol, thou art there. Ayin is that I, and it is in every place in very truth, because place there is not, save in the manifested, and wherever place is, there also are light and darkness side by side. From the mixture of light and darkness do all things proceed, and I am Prince of Darkness, as well as king of light. Shall there be anything wherein I, the Lord of all, have no dominion? They see crookedly who know this not, and in their deluded minds they divide my nature, setting the kingdom of light over against the realm of darkness, and thus making two gods. But the darkness is the fountain of existence, whence the universe floweth forth, and thick darkness, which is my habitation, is the substance of all outward appearance. Five score and thirty is the eye, which is the wellspring of outward appearance. That eye is the one, 
multiplied through the Sephirot. It is the sun of life and light, shining through the twelve tribes of heaven and spreading their power through the tree of life to make all things new. Yet does every beam of that sun cast a shadow also, for in all creation are light and darkness mixed, and their equilibrium is the mystery of mystery. One and not two is the beginning and end of all, but two are the aspects it presenteth to mankind, because men are subject to the illusion of duality. I, the Lord, destroy with darkness, but with darkness do I also create. The wise discern this. Fools deluded by outward appearance create a demon out of the web of their folly. In the last day shall the demon be cast into a lake of fire, but to each man there is appointed a last day, and none knoweth the time, save he who hath appointed it. The lake of fire is that divine understanding which cometh to a man who succeedeth in contemplation, as did our father Abraham, and the last day is the time of that achievement. Then shall all things pass away for that man, and he shall behold all things anew, and the prince of darkness shall be cast into the lake of fire. For then shall that enlightened one see that the demon is but the shadow of the Lord. Thank you so much, Greg, for this wonderful presentation of a great text. Now let's listen to another piece of music. It has been provided to us by another Montreal-based group, the industrial rock group Projekt F. Yes, Projekt, spelled in the German way. They are well known for their emotionally intense music and powerful stage theatrics. Founded in 2009, the band is comprised of lead singer and main composer John M. Miller, bassist William Hicks, guitarist Simon B. Doiron, and drummer Fred Links Gautier. Project F's music has been played by radio stations around the world, and we are very lucky that they offered a piece to us. To date, they have released one album and three EPs to numerous rave reviews. We will now hear their piece, Ghost, which sounds like a good choice for today, I think.
By Project F. I have asked my friend Martin Fox, a well-known hermeticist, meditation specialist and author, if he would make a contribution for today's show and I'm very happy he accepted. 
we will hear from him about Shawin's divination rituals from the British Isles and many other very interesting thoughts around that. Here comes Martin Fox. These glowing nuts are emblems true of what in human life we view. The ill-matched couple fret and fume and thus in strife themselves consume. Or from each other wildly start and with a noise forever part. But see the happy, happy pair of genuine love and truth sincere. With mutual fondness while they burn, still to each other kindly turn. And as the vital sparks decay, together gently sink away. Till life's fierce ordeal being past, their mingled ashes rest at last. Hello, my name is Martin Folks, and I've been asked to talk on this show about the divination rituals associated with Halloween. The poem I just read to you describes one such ritual, which involves the labelling and throwing of two nuts on a fire. By naming one nut after yourself and the other nut after a potential lover, this practice would allow you to see how this relationship could unfold. As the nuts burnt, everything they did was interpreted in terms of life. So if the nuts moved together, it would be seen as a good sign. If one jumped out of the fire, this would be seen as a sign of rejection or parting. If one faded away before the other, it could indicate an early death. This is only one of many of fascinating practices which are still performed today in the British Isles. Most of them come from pagan rituals and techniques and have been preserved through Halloween tradition because Halloween, to some degree, was a, a license to witch, a, an excuse to carry on with some of the older traditions. Many of these practices became lightened, and by the time we come to the Victorian period, were more seen as parlour games than anything else. What's interesting is that they're very rarely death-focused, but rather use Halloween, a time when it's said the veil is thin, to actually ask the questions that you'd like to have answers to, normally involving love and marriage. Most of them have a plant centred theme associated with harvest 
or with what's consumed at the time. Most people listening to this show will have heard of the practice of apple bobbing when apples are put in water and uh, people with their hands tied or put behind their back try to grab an apple with their mouth. Sometimes this is practiced just as a competition, but often this also includes a divinationary element. Once the apple has been gained, you cut it in half. And if there's a star, this can show good luck. But also you can count the apple seeds and uh, this has a numerological meaning. There were also other practices with apples. Skin an apple as carefully as possible with a paring knife so that you create a single spiral and then throw that peel over your shoulder. Turn and look at the peel on the ground and you will learn the initial of your future love. The practice of using plants as a means of divination didn't just take place in the actual celebration of Halloween, but during the lead up, there were often practices of a very similar nature, which are involved with actual gathering of plants. So, for example, Often someone would be blindfolded and they would pick a particular fruit or root and the symbolism of the actual plant would normally indicate what qualities about the lover you would be about to discover. Looking, for example, at a root, if it was shriveled and small, this could be interpreted as a quality of your future partner. Or likewise, if you were to pick an apple, you could judge the size of the apple as to how wealthy and successful your future husband would be. Often rituals such as this would also have a numerological element, a bit like the apple seeds. So you could pull up a plant and the number of roots would be counted or pick a grain and you'd be able to count the number of grains on that particular stalk and that would give you a indication of the future. There are also practices which involve floating of seeds, nuts or fruits, and a bit like the fire ritual we heard earlier on, looking at how they interact with each other. So if two oats were put 
in a dish of water. You could see if they would go towards each other or float away. Sometimes there would also be practices similar to what we would now associate with fortune cookies. So nuts which were to be consumed would have a a note hidden inside them secretly or a trinket attached to them. So when you picked up the walnuts you were to eat, it would tell you something about your future. The same was true of cakes. Cakes would be made with certain symbols on the bottom or tokens within them, which would act as a divinationary tool. Now, these rituals are very exciting. But what of other practices which may be closer to the hermetic arts? Well, you might be surprised to hear that there are some scrying techniques which were used. Sometimes you can even see these illustrated on Victorian cards, which show a a young lady looking in a mirror, and there'd be an apparition of a a man there, or sometimes a, a lecherous, monstrous figure. This was talking about the practice of looking in a mirror on midnight, on Halloween, so that you could see the face of your future love. Now, the methods of making sure that this was guided correctly vary beautifully. Sometimes there'd be a particular spell or incantation. Sometimes it'd be mixed up with the apple ritual. So you'd have a candle, the apple that you had managed to get from your apple bobbing or you'd picked blindfolded and you'd cut a slice of the apple every hour leading up to midnight. Each time as you ate the apple, you'd fill yourself with the the wish to see your future love. Practitioners will see some validity in this method of putting the intention very firmly in the mind's eye. Then at midnight you would stare intently into the mirror and your face would transform into the one you'd spend the rest of your life with. In addition to scrying techniques, there are some fascinating techniques involving lucid dreaming. Almost all of them involve the use of some stimulus to keep you on the edge of sleep and to bring around a sense of wakefulness. My favourite one would be a group practice where a group of female friends would get together and they would make biscuits. They would 
fill the biscuits with a lot of salt and herbs and they would pile them on a table in the centre. Sometimes uh, there would be a prayer or incantation or just the intention that as they ate uh, the cakes they were going to see their true love and the future of their relationship in the night. Then a glass of water would be taken uh, to bed and placed at the bottom of the bed. The reasoning being that your true love would most certainly come to help you in your thirst during the night. And this would force him to appear in your dreams. There are also many techniques which involve making posies or pillows out of various herbs, some with some very stimulating properties which you would sleep upon on Halloween. Other rituals, interesting enough designed to summon the spirit or summon a vision of your future husband, are very varied and idiosyncratic. One of them involves going to a well or, or a sacred place of water and dipping your sleeve into it. And then when you went home that evening, you would hang your shirt out to dry by the fire and go to bed. In the night, your future spouse would appear in order to turn over your shirt for you to make sure that both sides dry. Likewise, one other way you could frustrate your future partner into coming into your dreams or appearing as a, a vision on Halloween would be to turn all the cutlery upside down before you went to sleep. And he, being a dutiful future husband, would have to come in order to turn them the right way up. There are also practices which are designed to actually bring around effects. Many of these involve the sowing of seeds, the planting of intention in the ground while you sow a seed. And almost all of them are focused on attaining love. Sometimes these traditions mix somewhat. So we have circumstances where seeds are sown not to gain a love, but to gain a vision of your love. Walking through a field, dropping seeds behind you and then turning so that you can see a vision of your true love. Very similar to this practice are certain practices involving running around fields. So ring around the barley was a, a blindfolded practice where you would be span counterclockwise and then you would have to run around a large stack of barley 
And at the end of your third run, you would find yourself in the arms of your intended. I find these practices beautiful in their simplicity. And as you can hear, some of them have developed or evolved from genuine techniques, the mechanisms of which you can still see today. Perhaps this is an important message that Halloween has kept alive much of the wisdom of old and that there may be greater mysteries hidden in the burning fires of All Hallows' Eve than first meet the eye. Thanks, Martin, for your recording and for your interesting addition to this show. You know, all of those people who have contributed to today's show are very busy authors, teachers, practitioners, musicians, you name it. And it is not at all just normal that they took the time to be with us here today. Thomas Carlson, who has done an extensive interview on episode 4 and also later on a shorter special edition on Thoth Hermes, I reached him in Gotland, where he is very busy at the moment, and he sent nevertheless very nice wishes and a message for this special day via Facebook to us. So I will play for you this message also here, and if you have the possibility, do also go on the Thoth Hermes Facebook page and see the message. He did a very nice setup for it. And also be aware that he will read all the theses there by tomorrow, November 1. So you might not want to miss that. And now listen to Thomas Carlson's message. With this short video i wish to say hello especially to you uh, listeners of thoth hermes a podcast uh, that i uh, appreciate a lot and uh, have uh, cooperated with and look forward to cooperate with more in the future it's 500 years ago since the monk martin luther spiked his thesis on the church wall of wittenberg his 95 Theses would start revolutions, it started wars, but it's also started a new view on the world with progress and a lot of development and was a bridge to a new time that forever would change the world. It was connected to Gutenberg and the printing press which made it possible to spread information in a new way, uh, faster and quicker and to more people. Today we have also reached a paradigm where information is spread in another way than uh, before. And to celebrate 
the 500-year anniversary of when Martin Luther spiked his thesis, it has come as a magical task to write and to spike the thesis of the next 500 years. We are now coming into an era of the new reformation. Follow me, my friends, on this adventure. It will be amazing. I wish you all the best. Thomas Carlson, many thanks. Next, you're going to hear a short interview I did the other day with San Francisco-based author and psychic life coach Diana Rachel or Reichel. Well, here we are again with pronunciation differences between Europe and America. One of her books is called Samhain, Recipes, Ritual and Lore. So I thought she was the right person to ask about this season and its background and traditions. And also about some advice for those of you who might not yet quite know how to celebrate today. We are now going to meet Diana Reichel. Diana is a psychic life coach and a full-time writer. She lives in San Francisco, California, and she has written a very exciting book about Samhain Halloween, which has been published by Levelins. Hello, Diana. Hi, Rudolph. Thank you for having me. For the more anglicized pronunciations there, I'm Diana Rachel, and I did write a book on Samhain for the Llewellyn Sabbath Essential series that they released. It's 2017, so in 2015. I also wrote, for those of you that follow the Wiccan Sabbath cycle, Maven, which is the sort of kind of made up but not really holiday that precedes Samhain that observes the autumn equinox. And one of the reasons that I got chosen to write the Samhain book is because the way I presented it was that Samhain isn't just Samhain by itself. Maven, that autumn equinox holiday, is part of a cycle of recognizing not only abundance and harvest, but grief and loss. In several European mythologies, there and in some global mythology, there is this dying king mythos. And so what happens is autumn equinox is the way I've told the Sabbath cycle story is that at autumn equinox, this is when people realize that that king has to sacrifice himself for the people to survive, for the land to survive. So this is where John Barleycorn comes from and Jack in the Green and all of these stories. And it is about this person sacrificing himself as a form of leadership. You know, the leaders are often the sacrifices so that that survival could continue and by Samhain of course the king is dead this is where there starts to become the blend of the Inanna mythos and these stories about the queen who is also a leader and I don't want to get into the complications of gender divide just assume that they are roles and not 
body assigned genders in this case. King and queen do not have to be explicitly male and female. It is just an energy and a role with the energy. But the queen recognizes the loss and is grieving her loss. And so Samhain is the time of communion with the dead. And in this mythos, she descends, you know, the, you know, or the Christian phrase, he descended into hell, or she descended into the underworld to be with her lover. And there, during that time, during this time between Samhain and winter solstice is the time that she conceives the child that will become the next king. And so it is this communion of life and death and renewal. So for those that subscribe to reincarnation, this is in some ways the myth that covers the reincarnation cycle is in that dark period during that wild hunt period where the dead roam the earth from Samhain until the next solstice. That's my general spiritual view on Samhain is the best way to put it. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's very exciting because it covers so many aspects and something that, as you said, had nothing to do with male or female in the sexual sense, sense, but rather in a very psychological sense or archetypal sense. Could one say like that? Archetypal is a good sense, yes. And it's not just looking at it as the archetypes of literal fertility. I mean, those are there. Those are the base level. They're the easiest to understand. It's also the psychology of we all go through grief and loss. And so we have this time to remember and make room for the people that we've lost. And I am Polish-American. I was raised, my mother was Anglo-Saxon, so I was raised more with that. But I've been reincorporating some of the old Polish ways because it was much more friendly to acknowledging death and loss. Right. And and some of this is the setting the dumb supper and this stuff, but it's understanding that grief is a necessary part of life. And in the U.S., a lot of the times, especially in the parts of the country that I was raised in, grief was something to be suppressed and ignored. So sound is an entire holiday around acknowledging and upholding and honoring your grief. I think that's a very important aspect, I agree with you, because suppressing emotions is always dangerous for people, for yourself first and for your others, so to speak. Do you yourself celebrate this holiday season somehow in particular, or are you not so much into that? I, I, I do it a little differently every year. I do practice witchcraft, so, you know, this is kind of my holiday. And I live in San Francisco, so there's an added layer to this, is San Francisco and New York were the two first safe spaces for gay people in the United States. Yeah. And even in San Francisco, it wasn't always safe to be out of the closet. So in many ways, Halloween, the secular holiday associated with this, was considered the day that it was safe to come out and be who you were, even if it was openly gay. Right. And so there is, especially since I am, I consider myself to be a city priestess. So I actually serve the egregor or city spirit of San Francisco. And so part of it is that honoring that city spirit means acknowledging the secular holiday. So I will put on a costume and go dancing, but also because I do have the ancestral bond, especially through my Polish heritage, there is at least one day where I will serve a dinner and I will set a table for my father who passed on in 2009. 
and you know I will have out pictures of my ancestors and it will be a very serious thing and also I will invite friends and family from the community around me because to me it's not just my personal grief and loss and mourning and memories and joy you know, you know the entire Sabbath cycle is there is a third mythos that we don't talk about about the community level where it's the king and queen and the sacrifices they make and it's the what is needed from the leaders and what is needed from the people uh-huh. and you know if you're really into Arthurian mythos like most of that there's a reason that we co-opted that for uh, the John F. Kennedy administration way back when even though we don't have monarchy in that sense but monarchy as it's known is nothing like the original tribal monarchy it, you know it's it, it's understanding that it's almost it's all it's not quite the same thing as what Hindus would call Dharma but it's sort of the European version of it yeah there's just this these things have to happen for these things to happen and it's deeply integrated with human behavior and its integration with nature and some very subtle ways that aren't immediately easy to recognize. And so when I'm doing these personal celebrations, it's also because as the city priestess, I have this dharma with the city, for lack of a better word. Uh, it's not quite the right word because mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm definitely not Eastern in any of my practices. <laughs> you know, aside from some, you know, aside from yoga, that's fairly serious, but I, <laughs> no Buddhist would claim me. <laughs> but, I don't know. Are you familiar with the Terry Pratchett novels? Uh, yes, I am a bit. So in Hogfather, I can't remember the exact quote, and I've seen it before. It was the, you know, it could be some people just doing a ritual and the sun would rise anyway, but, you know, the sun really rises when the people do this ritual. Sure. It, it's that kind of connection. Yes, I see what you mean. I find it very interesting that you say Halloween is the secular part of that holiday. That's a very yeah. interesting aspect. I've never understood it like that, but that really explains me that duality between the two names also. Yes, and in the United States, it's explicitly secular. There were Samhain celebrations and some Celtic New Year ones way back when, but around the 50s, because pranks are a big a popular part of the celebration here and pranks were getting really expensive there was so much property damage that halloween was instituted as a national holiday with trick-or-treating to give people something to do so they would stop doing so much damage <laughs> but now you gave me the perfect link to what i want to ask you at the end if our listeners wanted to celebrate this holiday tonight what would you tell them to do? What would be a good thing for somebody who is maybe not a practicing witch or really much into magic and actively mm-hmm. in it, but wanted to do something special for that evening? What would you like them to do? I would say always start with your intention. And I would say with Samhain, there are three different intentions that might work. The first one is there are people that you have lost that you want to honor. So honoring grief and being with those that you've lost. The second would be acknowledging that this is a cycle, a year end, and perhaps spend some time thinking about what you might want to do differently or renew or what you've learned from the last year. And the third, and this is the least discussed, but still the most fun and the most secularized, but can be very spiritual, is to choose to just celebrate the possibility that magic is real. 
for a celebration as I would say choose from one of those three and if you're not even sure which one the right path is for you yet maybe just turn off all your lights turn off all the lights in your house open the windows so hopefully you can see the stars but let the night in and just light a candle and just sit and listen for a while that's very beautiful and now you know After this interview, we're going to play the right piece of music for that, to listen into the dark. Oh, that's so wonderful. Well, so. thanks so much, Diana. Thanks for coming here to us tonight for this special event. And I'm looking forward to having you back on the Thought Hermit podcast when your next book will be coming out. Wonderful. And I'm hoping it comes out in 2019. So I'm working on a book on urban magic and working with City Spirit right now, which will be coming out with Llewellyn. That sounds great. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Diana. So you just heard that I promised the right music for when you follow Diana's suggestions. And of course, I'm going to play that for you. Wendy Rule whose wonderful music is always introducing and ending each episode of Thoughts Hermes, has, despite being very busy, found the time to send me a short message for you, dear friends and listeners, and she has asked me to read it to you. Now, this is from Wendy Rule. Hello, dear Thoughts Hermes listeners, and a blessed Shawen to you. I am actually on tour in the Beltane, springtime lands of Melbourne, Australia at the moment, feeling the beautiful polarity of life and death that unites these two sacred and simultaneous festivals. It is my birthday today, October 31st, and I am celebrating by spending the day in the recording studio working on my next album. Please. Enjoy this offering from me, a song called Dissolve, from an album released many years ago that honors the energy of Sawin and the sacred underworld. May your Sawin be filled with depth and beauty, and may your ancestors be honored. Wendy, thank you so much, and to you, happy birthday and blessed Beltane. In the name of all of us listening. And now, here we go. Dissolve from the album World Between Worlds. Oh. 
dissolves me. Wendy Rule, Dissolve, a beautiful and very special piece. Helen Arts, who is our next contributor, has been a practitioner of the occult for over 30 years. She teaches and gives seminars at all levels, from public workshops to university courses. Her passion is teaching and counseling individuals and groups in all aspects of magic, the occult and the paranormal, for the purpose of increasing understanding, building skills and healing. Helen, who resides in the province of Ontario in Canada, will read to us a text called Death by Liminal Design, Circambulating the Lemniscate from one side to the other. This text has been written by Gabriel McCaffrey from Anathema Publishing, whose music you have already heard earlier in this episode and from whom you are going to hear yet another piece a bit later. Lean back, take a deep breath, and listen to Helen. O oh, ceaseless yet final breath, a moment passed away in eternity, raven obscured by the monolith before the inevitable blight of nihility where the emerald eye of Luke's fair sits, and closing, as it were, as night descendeth, as the man in black cometh, for you and I, and she, the omni-cipher, draws ever nigh. Tonight I raise my horns, my hands, and my light, for these horns gored at the roots of delusion, fallacy, and deceit, which divert focus from the numinous. These hands strangled in its crib the infant who is called fear and buried deep in the ground the corpse for time to run its course. And this light burned the sprout of despondency and cowardice, which renders the world sterile, dull and profane. Yes, these dirty tans and horns have sinned much, seen much, drank much. This light within has bled, and as such has been blessed, touched by the glacial yet inspiriting grace of the pale she who is without name and without face. Sawin, grimmest apex, Twain wheel of dusk and dawn in embrace, weaving fate, binding self and faith for them to operate and mutate into equal part, fire, ether, and crystal, and thus actuate the darkness which illuminates and guides us through this season of mourning and ingress. But mourn the past, we cannot. Wallow in grief instead of learning, we shall not. From pain there is growth, and a whole world to gain. This we swear by our forebears, 
and mighty Tubal Cain. In these somber times of interior mysteries, bereft I shall keep the germinal seed of life, safely guarded in the tomb of the old self, until she makes it so that life renews with her twin sister death, and that the bright gnosis prevails against all odds once again. So mote it be. Amen. Thank you so much, Hélène and Gabrielle, for this wonderful moment you gave us. One more text to come, dear listeners, and this time I picked it for you. I'm going to read to you a piece by Edgar Allan Poe, one of those very special ones, I believe. Written in 1843, it is The Telltale Heart. True, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease has sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of the hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How, then, am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived it haunted me day and night. Object? There was none. Passion? There was none. I laughed the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold, and so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now, this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me, you should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it oh so gently, and then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, that no light shone out, and then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. 
it took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh, so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked, I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights, every night, just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work. For it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning, when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were close-fastened through fear of robbers, and so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I had my head in and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening and the old man sprang up in bed crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour, I did not move a muzzle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed, listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh no. It was the low stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom 
deepening with his dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise, when he had turned in the bed. His fears had ever been since growing up upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but couldn't. He had been saying to himself, it is nothing but the wind in the chimney, it's only a mouse crossing the floor, or it's merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain. All in vain, because death in approaching him had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a simple dim ray, like the thread of the spider, shot from out the crevice and fell upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person for I had directed the ray as if by instinct, precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the sense? Now I say there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton, I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury, as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet I refrained and kept still, I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless, I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eve. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say louder, every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, Amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this 
excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet, for some minutes longer I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst, and now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come with a loud yell. I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It wouldn't be heard through the wall. At length it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If still you think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out. No stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. I had been too wary for that. A top had caught all. Ha ha! When I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock. Still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for... What had I now to fear? There entered three men, who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled. For what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot 
beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things, but ere long I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears, but still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice, yet the sound increased and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed. I raved, I soar, I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no, no, they heard, they suspected. They knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die, and now again. Hark! Louder! 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 Villains, I shrieked, dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here. Here. It's the beating of his hideous heart. Edgar Allan Poe, The Telltale Heart. Now to our last piece of music, as already suggested again by Gabriel McCaffrey, but with another group he works with. Blight is made up of Pascal, Rob, Cedric and Gabriel himself, who of course also wrote the lyrics. The song is called Void Light and comes from their 2016 album The Teachings. 
Avoid Light by Blight. Well, dear friends and listeners, this brings our special seasonal edition for Sawin 2017 to an end. I hope you have enjoyed this special format and its density. Once again, many, many thanks to all contributors, without who this episode couldn't have come out. I really appreciate your effort and friendship. Thanks a lot. Once again, please go to the Thoth Hermes website, www.thothhermes.com, and get all the extra information and links about our contributors and about other topics. Thanks to you, dear friends and listeners, for being with me today. I hope each of you found something interesting or inspiring, and I'm looking forward to your feedback. And please think about the contribution for our next seasonal special on December 21st for the winter solstice. I'm sure there is a lot of talent out there. Show it to us. Now, the ending, like the beginning of this episode, goes along our traditional way. Wendy Rule is back with her night sea journey, and I can only hope to have you back on November 9 for the start of our season 2, when our featured guest will be Angel Millar. For today, and for this special season, I can only say, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon. Happy Sawin. Thank you.